Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Alexa Clay, Director of the RSA US, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event. I'm delighted to have the chance to talk today to Sarah Jaffe about her new book, Work Won't Love You Back, which publishes today. Sarah Jaffe is an independent journalist covering the politics of power from the workplace to the streets. She has written for the New York Times, The Guardian, The Nation, and many other outlets, and is a fellow of the Tite Media Center. Sarah's new book examines the labor of love myth, the idea that certain work is not really work and should be done for the sake of passion and fulfillment rather than decent pay and security. We all know someone, perhaps even ourselves, who has had to endure working for free in exchange for experience, poor conditions in the name of being part of the family, or serious amounts of overtime for a good cause. Sarah is determined to consign that practice to history and have us ask for what we're really worth. Sarah, welcome and thank you for joining us. It's great to have a chance to talk through some of the ideas contained in the book. Perhaps we could start by asking what led you to write this book? Thanks for having me. Um, I wrote this book because I am that person, right? I worked in the service industry for many, many, many years from the time I was 14 until I was 27 or so. Um, And then I did some unpaid internships and finally now I'm a journalist. So I am sort of on all sides of the labor of love story. And when I got out of journalism school and actually was able to get a full-time job as a journalist, which was no easy feat in 2009, um, I started writing about work because the economy had just collapsed and it was on everyone's mind, whether you had a job, you had just lost a job, sort of like it is right now, this was, work was the big hot topic. And the more workers I talked to, the more I started to hear some of the same themes over and over and over again. And particularly, I think in times of crisis like this, when we are sort of the feeling of being grateful to have any job at all, you sort of double down on that, right? Because so many people are unemployed, your boss can use that as more leverage against you. But even if they don't, you can internalize this feeling that like, oh my God, I should be grateful to be able to do any kind of work. And especially if it's work that comes with some sort of enjoyment or prestige to it, you can feel even more like I have to be really, really, really good or this whole thing will you know, evaporate out from under me. Great, thank you. I mean, it's just fascinating to read and I found myself interrogating my own sort of masochism around work. Um, and, and I think one of the central tenets that you really look at is how this idea of freedom and happiness to be found through wor- work is really a perverse kind of capitalism. And so I think, you know, with the last year, what we've seen in the pandemic, it is time for us to begin to break up with this idea that we need to love our work. Yeah. Um, one thing you really do impactfully in the book is to trace some of the history. How did this mythology, you know, get shaped? And I'm wondering if you can just talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so one of the other things that that actually shaped this book, although it's not in this book that much, was a lot of reporting that I was doing on factory closures, plant closures, um, the decline of industrial work. So, you know, right after Donald Trump was elected, the first thing I did was go to Indiana to the carrier plant, which Trump had made such a focal point of his campaign. We're going to bring these jobs back to America. And then right after his ele- his 
yeah, right after his election, not even after his inauguration, he sort of went and cut this deal with Carrier along with, you know, Vice President Mike Pence, who was the governor of the state where Carrier was. And I am fascinated by this whole story because it, it shows a lot about Trumpism. But what also happened was I was talking to these, you know, guys who worked at this plant, not all guys, also plenty of women worked at that plant, and saying, what, what is it that you would really like to do if you could get another job doing anything? And it was almost hard for them to even imagine, like, they're like, I'm not here because I like it. You know, the, the answer over and over again was like, well, the money, the money is the thing. You know, here we make $26 an hour plus overtime and have, you know, certain benefits. We have good health care. We have paid vacation time. I can buy a house in this area. And, you know, next to the plant is a Target distribution center and an Amazon distribution center. And they're looking at that going, that doesn't cut it. But the idea that they would like go out and look for their dream job, which would be like super emotionally fulfilling, was just not really there. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about that, I started to think about, okay, with the change in our economy, with the decline of those jobs and the rise of the kind of work that I had been doing my entire life, whether that be waiting tables, working in retail, um, you know, I didn't really babysit that much, but childcare was often uh, a thing that, you know, young women my age did. As that work becomes a bigger and bigger part of the economy, what different narrative about work are we learning? Are we hearing? Are we internalizing? It's kind of funny. I was just reading um, one of the early reviews of my book today and the, the writer starts it off with his dad saying to him, you don't have to like it. That's why it's called work, which my father also said to me when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like that, that was on some level a shift from the story that my parents had heard growing up, which is you go get a job because you need a job. You want to make money. Um, and the story that they told me as I was growing up was like, do what you love and do something exciting and go to college so you can get a job that's, you know, exciting and fulfilling. But also like anytime I suggested, you know, I want to write fiction, they were like, yeah, you can't do that. You can't really make money. So I feel like I grew up on the cusp of it, but now it's really saturated all forms of work. And you see, I mentioned in the book somewhere, an ad for a maid service calling for a passionate individual to clean houses. And it's just like, look, really, yeah. really? Come on now. What I love about your book is just how it really invokes us to dissect and interrogate some of the myths that we're born into around work um, and through our family constellations. I think one of the things that I found fascinating is the degree to which work alienates us from our past and how that's always been the promise of freedom and social mobility and the idea that your work can take you anywhere within this neoliberal current. And then on the other hand, how that actually divorces us from the culture that we're born into and leads to this feeling of alienation and, and separation. Yeah, I think one of the things that again, I, that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about in the political context we've been in for the last four or five years is the way like class is about geography these mm -hmm. days. And it's often reported in a really simplistic kind of way. Like in the UK, um, there's a lot of conversation about how labor lost the red wall, right? And that is sort of a metonym for the working class. Except what's actually happened is that like the kids of the working class in a lot of those places have had to move to London to get a job or move to Leeds or move to Manchester, or move to the closest big city, because that's actually where you can find work. So instead of the working class being in a factory outside of Manchester, they're an Uber driver in the city. 
Um, and that's, yeah, the geography of class has changed in that way. And a lot of that is people departing where they grew up because the kind of work that you could do where you grew up is gone. Um, I mentioned in the introduction of the book, um, a guy named Chucky Dennison, who I met at the Lordstown plant outside of Youngstown, Ohio. This is kind of the storied automobile plant, right? It's a, a General Motors plant and it closed down in 2019. And Chucky's a couple years older than me. Um, he's in his early forties and right out of high school, he just went and got a job from GM. And I was actually just looking over this interview to fact check something. And he was like, you know, I was excited that I was gonna have a pension again, right? But that, that story that you could go and just get a job outside, you know, down the street from your house without a college degree, without needing to sort of jump through hoops to get it, that's gone, right? Chucky's kids won't be able to do that. And so again, that this, this way that like the change in the patterns of work has really disrupted a lot of people's lifestyles. And I'm not trying to romanticize the, the car plant. Like Chucky would tell me, you know, on the floor, it was like there was a war on the workers. Management seemed to hate them having any sort of fun. Um, it was not a great job. And the workers, you know, at GM went on strike last year to prove that. And so, you know, to, to think about all of this and to think about the way that this changes, I mean, I do the history because I'm a nerd and I'm obsessed with it. And I think it's really fascinating to look at how these work, these um, narratives about work have changed. But I also do it to remind us that it has changed, that these things are not the way things have always been, that work was not a thing that like human beings invented because we were bored and needed fulfillment. Work was a thing invented so that some people could make a bunch of money, like the, the form of wage labor that we have, people kind of had to be forced and, and beaten into. So I want to tell this narrative in order for us to, to imagine that we can, we could actually make more conscious sort of decisions as a society to do this differently. Mm. One thing that you trace out is some of the emotional blowback of not living up to this myth. That we've internalized this idea that we should love work and what begins to happen when we don't meet up with those expectations. And so you invoke shame, the way in which people encounter this feeling of shame and some of the emotional byproducts of not being able to live up to this myth. That really made the point for me. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting subject on a few levels, right? We hear a lot about burnout these days. And the researchers who first came up with the idea of burnout were studying caring workers, right? They were studying sort of hospital workers, doctors and nurses. And one of the, the things that they define as important as part of burnout is a loss of sort of intrinsic motivation for your job. But you can only lose it if you had it, right? That's a thing that, you know, if you're just like, oh, I'm going to work. Like I didn't feel burned out when I was waiting tables because I wasn't particularly intrinsically motivated to come, you know, serve plates of sushi to people. I was going there to pay my rent, but I definitely feel burned out doing journalism sometimes. And a lot of that is like, some days I cannot drag myself up to have to do the thing that I have to do. And so I think that's a, an interesting concept about this period of time. And I think it's really connected to this changing narrative of how we work and these changing expectations of what work should do for us. 
And I think about it in the other way, which is in the book, I tell the story of Anne-Marie Reinhardt, who worked at Toys R Us, which um, I don't know if it was a thing that ever existed in, in the UK, but it was a massive toy store chain. And she worked there for over 30 years. And, you know, she got hired as a holiday employee one year right after she'd had her, her kids and then ended up staying. And for a while she was like, you know, they, they worked with me. They were flexible with my schedule. They allowed me to go to my kids' football games and be a good mom and also bring home money. But she also, you know, talked about working the holiday season and missing a lot of the holidays with her kids. But still after 30 years at this company where she'd worked her way up to being in HR and actually, you know, representing the company to other people as a good place to work, suddenly the company goes bankrupt and they're all being thrown out into the streets basically with no support, no severance, no nothing. And she and all of these other workers are suddenly like, oh, I gave my life to this thing and it's just gone. And the kind of anger, and I, I love this story because the workers self-organized on Facebook in a group called the Dead Giraffe Society, because of course the giraffe was the logo of Toys R Us. And so they formed this thing that was, you know, in the beginning, just an idea of a place where they could talk to each other about this thing that had been such a huge part of their lives. And then some labor organizers found their way in there and said, hey, we can try to fight to at least get you some severance, to at least get um, something back for you. And also to try to make sure that this doesn't happen again. To anybody else. So yeah, there's there's a real emotional toll it can take on you when you realize that that this isn't what it was cracked up to be. But it can also be a really, really motivating factor to to do something about it. I mean, what I love about that is just to broaden out so many of the emotions that we think come up with the workplace and how, you know, this idea of mourning that you just invoked and grief. Um, I know when I've left jobs, it does feel like a kind of separation. You yeah. you invoke this trope, work is family, a lot in mm -hmm. your book. And it's really this pernicious idea that I think has become more popular with Silicon Valley, how these tech companies are trying to be everything to their workers, boarding on these intentional communities or even becoming more cult-like. And I think that's really dangerous. And, and it's being exported to the world. And so what kind of safeguards can we put in place to prevent this cultish idea of work as family? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I start the book with a chapter on the unpaid work that gets done in the home because like the family is also a, a production of a certain part of capitalism, right? And the family is a place where work happens. The home is a place where work happens. And then, so it's it's fascinating that like companies, like tech companies will invoke the, the metaphor of the family. There's this one company that I mentioned in the book that brands itself as a fampany, which is a cursed portmanteau. But like, they evoke this term because even though the family is a place where work happens, they think, we think of it as a place that's the opposite of work. And so I really, I wanted to sort of start the book by pulling apart those threads so that we can see later when they come up again and again and again in all of these different types of work from retail to you know, a video games company, we can understand that like there's a, there's a reason that we lean on this idea of the family as somehow anti-work, but also actually a motivating device to make you work even harder. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, because we think of the family as a place where we do work out of love, where your parents took care of you because they love you. And if you have children, you take care of them because you love them and you love your partner, hopefully. And <laughs> all of this is, is supposedly built on sort of genuine mutual feeling. And we do things for each other out of that feeling. And so if your boss is evoking the idea of the family and the feeling, then your boss is also basically encouraging you to do your work for him because you love him rather than for the paycheck that you are probably waiting for. And that is so, I mean, so messy, right? Um, Kevin Aguatza, who's the video game programmer that I profile in the book said, you know, maybe I moved halfway across the country to get this job. And then I get laid off, you know, three weeks in after you've told me I've joined the family, but the family doesn't have mass layoffs once a year. Right? And like, I mean, sometimes it does, who knows, but I mean, that's, that's terrifying to me. The idea that our, you know, best instincts in terms of, you know, love and mutualism and that that whole kind of richness of being a human gets co-opted by shareholder interests, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so I like that you use the word con job in your book. You basically say that this is a con job, that we are, you know, we're dressing this up as something else when in fact it's actually much more around exploitation. Um, and let's call it what it is. I also wanted to ask a bit about this um, twin thread of the ways in which we kind of use work to discover our own authenticity, because I think this is kind of wrapped up in this myth, but that work somehow offers us this opportunity to develop ourselves. Um, and you see tons of, you know, this within industry where workplaces are trying to foster certain kinds of leaders. And so the ways in which work kind of self-fashions individuals around, you know, a kind of middling identity historically or, or what should be a kind of good person. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, work is always a place that that shapes who we are, right? And again, this is this is not new. This goes back a ways. I was just reading Greg Grandin's book Fordlandia, which is about specifically about Henry Ford's sort of rubber planta plantation in the Amazon. But really, it's about Henry Ford's sort of obsession with um, shaping and molding the people who worked for him. And so, even as this rubber plantation is totally going off the rails in the Amazon. Ford and the people who work for him are telling themselves it's now worth doing because this is like this altruistic project where they're bringing the work ethic to people who, you know, wouldn't have it otherwise because they, they didn't need to work so hard in the Amazon. So, I mean, I love this is, yeah. India. I think that I've, I've read it. It's such a great book. book. And I think what, what's interesting about it is the ways in which these sort of grand titans of industry need to aid in creating these little empires, right? Yeah. And often I think what motivated Ford to set up Fordlandia in Brazil, which was a neo-colony, was yeah. the desire to somehow retreat to a more nostalgic mm. American past without the Fordism that he introduced. And so he literally forced people to like square dance and eat, you know, you know, foreign <laughs> food and, and just... Yeah, it was it was really a penetrating kind of um, you know cultural attempt at, at imperialism. Yeah, and when you look at companies today that are trying to do the same thing, right? That like Google and Amazon and Facebook sort of incentivizing its employees to move within one mile of the Facebook campus, like all of these things are in some way the same thing, right? Um, I cite Kate Lossie's book, The Boy Kings, which is her memoir of being one of the early Facebook employees. 
And, you know, she talks about Mark Zuckerberg sort of hiring young men who reminded him of himself. And the way that like all of these companies end up being shaped around, again, ideas of who and what the worker is around who and what the worker should be, what are good qualities, what are bad qualities. You know, the history of computer programming starts with women because at first it was a low prestige job. And then when it started to gain more prestige, suddenly it's, it's not only that like men start doing it, but that the narrative around it changes. And so you end up with these fascinating stories of them like instituting these personality tests because apparently to be a good programmer, you have to kind of be an antisocial jerk which I don't get, <laughs> but like the, this whole story of the characteristics that a worker doing this should have went from these kind of female coded traits of like patience and um, adaptability and teamwork to this very solitary sort of antisocial man just hunched over the keyboard, you know, however long a day, and it does end up being however long a day. And yeah, so again, I, I find these narratives really fascinating because they just show us how socially controlled and constructed and how like consciously in many cases, socially constructed these narratives are. Um, in other cases, you get like the story of Walmart that I go back to a lot, Bethany Morton's wonderful book, To Serve God in Walmart. I always do these interviews and just re recommend like a hundred books. So, um, but Bethany Morton is an amazing historian who wrote this wonderful book about Walmart and about the first people that Walt Sam Walton hired at his first sort of five and dime stores in Bentonville, Arkansas were women because he didn't have to pay women as much. And because a lot of these were women who had been sort of farm wives who had done plenty of work before, but they'd never done it for a wage. They did it as part of making the family farm productive. And now the family farm wasn't a sustainable enterprise anymore. So they're going to pick up some wages now. They don't expect much in wages, but they bring to Walmart this service ethos that they had. They were mostly Christian women. Again, this is, you know, the rural United States. And so they bring this sort of Christian service ethic to the workplace that turns out is really great for customer service. And so Walton sort of co-opts this from his workers. So this idea that Sam Walton was this like devout Christian person is actually really not true, um, but it comes from them having adopted that from the workers, from the social environment that the workers came from. So it's always interesting to me the way these things play back and forth, right? And the tension between what the boss wants, what the workers want, the ongoing sort of struggles about that that shape the world we live in. In terms of two, I want to shift over, at, you know, from diagnosis, which I'm thoroughly bought into. I think, you know, we <laughs> have this problem towards, okay, how do we actually break up with this ideology? How do we begin to do the personal work and systems work to get out of this, you know, relationship that we have with needing to love what we do um, and, and examine the toxicity around that? What are, what are some pathways towards that type of liberation? Yeah, so each of these chapters in this book sort of profiles a worker doing a different kind of work. And I chose all these people because they're people who have organized around that work. So they've, they've pushed back on this idea that they do it only for love. 
and they have made demands in all of these cases, whether we're talking about somebody who organizes around being a single parent and organizes around universal basic income to, you know, Anne-Marie Reinhardt and the Toys R Us workers fighting for severance pay and fighting to change the law so that the company can't just bail on you in the future without supporting its workers in some way to people who, you know, joined and formed unions. So whether that, you know, again, be domestic workers joining the National Domestic Workers Alliance or the video games workers joining Game Workers Unite, you have all of these different people who are, are again, who are putting forward solutions, but they're doing it by, again, coming together with other people. So, you know, one of the things I want people to take away from this book is that it's not personal. It's not something that you can just solve by sort of having a better relationship with your own work. It's something we have to solve as a society, as a workplace, as a group of people who can consciously, again, make a decision that this, this thing sucks and we have to do something about it. And that thing we do about it has to sort of come from and with power because, you know, I can decide all I want that I want to have a healthier relationship with work, but the rent is going to get, have to get paid and I am going to need to do whatever work I have to do in order to get there. And so whether or not like in my head, I, I tell myself I shouldn't love my work or not, I still have to work long hours a lot of the time unless we actually change the industry. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great. And part of it speaks to the kind of need to really radicalize the whole self-help industry, the ways in which we're having these conversations around, you know, getting a book to, to plan out my own work-life balance versus organizing amongst workers and creating more forms of solidarity in civil society. I think one thing that's been interesting to track this year is, um, universal basic income and how much that's been fast-tracked by the pandemic that in February, you know, Andrew Yang was talking about it and people were laughing at it. And all of a sudden it's kind of broken through some of our more like pernicious cultural ideology and become something that people are really taking more seriously. Mm -hmm. um, is that is that an idea, a policy idea that you see as having a lot of potential to kind of untether us from this relationship with work? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've got one, right? We're, I'm waiting on my second uh, stimulus check right now. And then they're currently fighting in Congress about whether they're going to give us another $1,400 or another $2,000. Um, so we've seen that the government can, in fact, just cut everyone a check. And in fact, they can do that pretty quickly. So um, yeah, it's it's been... The thing about basic income, if it's going to be done right, is it has to be done in a way that actually allows people to say no to bad work. Um, this was the demand, um, and I, I cannot ever get through any conversation without talking about the welfare rights movement, um, which in the U.S. was led, again, by Black women who had only been able to get access to welfare benefits at all for a fairly short amount of time. And then, of course, as soon as Black women begin getting access to welfare benefits, white people start freaking out that Black women won't work anymore because of course black women have been working for wages since they were given wages and weren't slaves in this country um, in much, much higher numbers than white women. And so the women of the welfare rights movement organized around and nearly won a basic income under Richard Nixon, which again is history that like not that long ago, um, I remember when Nixon died and they, 
we're fighting for this as a way to say that like, A, the work we're already doing raising our children is work. B, we don't want to be forced into crappy relationships with men because men should somehow support us. We want to be able to leave that as well. And C, that we deserve to be able to live whether or not we work. And so all of those concepts, I think, are really, really important. And also, you know, what happened when Bill Clinton, quote unquote, reformed welfare is that a lot of women were forced into low wage work. And you can look at like the fight for 15, organizing them around um, low wage work, which is, again, mostly done by women of color as a direct offshoot of welfare reform and welfare policy in this country, that more and more people were pushed to take these crappy jobs because there was no other option for them. And that helps keep wages low in all of these jobs. And so, you know, if we want to talk about a real basic income. It can't be sort of what, you know, conservatives in Silicon Valley would love to do, which is take away any form of the social safety net and just cut us all a check. But it is also useful to think about like, what things can't we just provide as services? Um, what things do people have different needs for different, um, right? Like healthcare should just be provided because healthcare, you know, I can't control if I get cancer tomorrow. Um, you know, I've been pretty healthy, knock on, I don't have wood around here to knock on. Um, but if I get sick tomorrow, I get COVID tomorrow, I can't control that. But I don't have kids, don't particularly want them. Although again, if my income situation had been different for most of my life, I might've decided differently. But I might wanna spend my money on more travel. Like there, there are, I think these are interesting things to weigh back and forth and I don't wanna get too deep in the weeds on, on basic income versus basic services. But I think we have realized that because of the pandemic that working ourselves to death, literally, right? Because literally people are catching COVID at work and dying of it is maybe a bad idea. And maybe it would be better for all of us if we worked less, not even to, and then we can get into climate change and the fact that we all need to work a lot less because we're producing a bunch of junk that we don't need. And our work itself consumes resources that need to stay in the ground if we want to continue to have a livable planet. So, you know, no pressure though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's so important and there's such a strong feminist current to, um, to the arguments in your book. And also, you know, this this kind of masochism that's involved in work. I remember I, the first time I hear, heard about UBI um, was from, you know, a Frenchman. And there was just something that balked at it instantly, you know, mm -hmm. at a cellular level being an American, where I realized how programmed I am to connect work with masochism. Um, and for that to be a, a sort of pleasure feeling, you know, uh, for that to, <laughs> to be something that, you know, my ancestors would be proud based on, you know, all the work that they've put into something that we're kind of standing on the shoulders of these, of people that have, that have really worked hard for a better life. And so I think it's part of that kind of myth-making, um, yeah. that work is, is how we sort of, um, prove ourselves in the world, yeah. prove ourselves to our families, prove ourselves, you know, to peers and to others. And I think um, it's really a question of how we start, you know, to revalue 
uh, things in society. And I think one thing that I love that you pointed out is just all the unpaid work that we do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the personalities around the caretakers um, that are so, you know, vastly undervalued for the work that they're doing um, in the world and so much of that unpaid labor which does accrue to women. Um, there were a few different um, things I wanted to point out too. One is this obsession with maker culture um, and then the sort of romanticization of, of farming. I know there's, you know, this trend now where everyone's kind of being a farmer and my dad was a farmer and it was tough and he was excited to get out of it. And so I'm just wondering for these kind of you know, cultural moments that are a bit fetishizing of, of, you know, our addiction to maker culture or that kind of farming personality that we often see through this romantic lens. Um, yeah. How, how, how can we sort of um, slay, slay that persona? I mean, we're all baking bread in lockdown, right? right. Um, I don't actually bake bread, but I definitely have been stress baking a lot. <laughs> it's, it's really a thing. Um, and I think that actually brings up something interesting, which is that sometimes things that we do for fun are also things that we do for work. Or sometimes they're things that I do for fun, but other people do for work, right? I can make myself cookies or I can go down the street to the bakery and buy them from somebody who does them professionally. Um, that's always a tension that happens back and forth. I think one of the things that's interesting about a lot of these things that get fetishized is that a lot of them are, are ways that people didn't have a boss. So whether that's like the story that gets sold to you, if you want to be an Uber driver, that, you know, you'll be your own boss um, or, you know, thinking back again to the, the farm where you didn't have, you know, a boss looking over your shoulder, but you did have to do a bunch of work to make sure that your family could survive. Um, so going back to that family farm, the pre-Walmart family farm, maybe we say, um, all of these, I think are interesting in that, they tell us a lot of things about what we think and what we feel and what we want about our work lives. So what does it tell us that we think about, like I used to joke all the time that I'm gonna quit journalism and go raise sheep. And now I like sheep, sheep are cool. Um, I like goats even more, but I hear goats are a real pain in the butt to raise. <laughs> but like, what, it, what is it that I want to get rid of? I mean, partly, Usually when I'm threatening that, it's because I want to get rid of the public facing part of my job, right? I'm tired of having to put on eyeliner and be on camera um, or talk to people at all. I don't want to talk to people or worrying about like what anybody thinks about this thing that I wrote. That's usually what I want to give up when I threaten to go raise sheep. Also, sheep are cool. Um, also, I want to get out of the city. That's a thing. But I also just want to get rid of the boss right? That's the thing. And I, I'm a freelancer, so I don't have one boss, but I just have a lot of people that I have to answer to at various different times in my life, which is sometimes really frustrating when they tell you, you know, you'll be your own boss. What they really mean is you have like 200 bosses. Um, or that we are worse bosses to ourselves sometimes than others could be. You know, there's no turning off. Yeah. When you're your own boss, there's no turning off. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a weird thing, right? Because like, there's no, you're no, there's no turning off, but there, there's no turning off because like, I do have to get other people to pay me. So I, I like, I don't love the language around self-exploitation. I, I think that's a contradiction in terms. Exploitation is when somebody else is profiting from your labor. Um, that's what it means. But, but like, you know, I'm hustling, not because I like to torture myself at bottom, but because I want to get myself you know, my version of a raise, which is that, you know, the same publications have been paying the same rates to me for 10 years now. And so the way that I get a raise is get published by new publications that pay more. 
um, or write a book that hopefully, you know, some people will buy, please. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're looking to improve those conditions because ideally, like I'm hoping that at some point I won't have to write quite as many pieces for a couple hundred dollars each because I will be writing fewer pieces for a couple thousand dollars each. Um, that's, you know, these are the goals. They're, they're not actually that much to ask. <laughs> um, great, thank you. I know we're running short on time, but just wanna ask if there's anything else that you really want listeners to take away from today or one thing that you'd like to see changed? Oh my goodness. I mean, we have a new president in the US and I've been talking with, with friends who write about and think about and organize around labor. And so we've been talking about our, you know, dreams and hopes and whatevers and um, making it easier to form a union would be real helpful right about now, because that's actually the best way we can start to affect change in our workplaces. And the challenge is sort of, you know, we got good workplace policy in both the US and the UK because workers were organized and in motion. And then we got you know, policy on the national level that made it easier for workers to organize. And so it becomes a virtuous cycle. And so hopefully we can think about those questions both again on a political level and also in, not in our hearts, but in our workplaces and in the conversations we're having with each other. Great. Well, hopefully this conversation is helping people at home begin to deconstruct um, how that myth is living inside them and how it's animating some of their life. But just want to really thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, to those of you who are watching, highly recommend Sarah's book, Work Won't Love You Back, uh, coming out today. I hope our conversation has given you a taste of what a truly illuminating book it is. You'll find links to the book on the RSA website. And while you're there, you can also find much more information on upcoming RSA events and podcasts, as well as news from our policy teams, including the latest research from our Future of Work program and from our Global Fellowship Changemaker Network. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you again, Sarah. Thanks everyone for watching. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.